This is the Cover 2 Podcast with Don Banks and Nick Stevens. Brady on the deep drop, stands in, fires down the middle for Gronkowski, makes the grab at the 45, spinning away from defenders. He's gone to the 20, to the 10, to the 5, to the end zone. The Cover 2 Podcast on Patriots.com. The play fake and a throw to the end zone for Antonio Brown. Touchdown, Pittsburgh. Nobody covers the NFL like the guys from Cover 2. Eight different receivers have caught a pass from Matt Ryan today. He's looking to throw again. Wide open, Julio Jones has it. And in the end zone, touchdown, Falcons. Now, Don Banks and Nick Stevens. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Cover 2 Podcast with Banks and Stevens. I'm Don Banks, joined by my co-host Nick Stevens. Nick, we are so versatile here on the Cover 2 Podcast because we're going to jump right in and start talking a little postseason baseball, a little postseason hiring. I'm all over the Alex Cora to the Red Sox move. I know you were uh, a Gabe Kapler guy, but talk about universal uh, thumbs up Cross the board praise. Uh, Cora's getting it. Everybody is excited about Alex Cora. Young mind, young, bright young ascending mind of the game. Relatable, bilingual, takes a new school approach. Understands, though, that everyone has to be treated differently. And that's what it's got to be. It seems to me now, these days, a lot of coaches and managers that are most effective are the ones who can use the kind of discipline they grew up around, but at the same time understand that well, the millennial athlete might need a little different kind of care. Yeah, I think I think they realized at some point that they needed to – coddle's not the right word, but they needed to encourage the young players who – like a Bogarts and a Benintendi and even Betts. They all – you know, they all underachieved from expectations this year. And I thought they were smart in going after someone that they think – can get the best out of these guys and then elevate their performance level. And in Houston this year, now he was the bench coach for one year. He's not uh, – he doesn't get credit for everything that happened, obviously. But in Houston, everybody had better years than expected. And that's bottom line that did not happen in Boston. And from that standpoint, I think it was a good call. Yep. It's uh, the devil you know, which is good. He's familiar with the organization won a World Series with them already, so they're hoping right. they can repeat a little bit of that magic. And l- l- let's be honest, the man, the guy who should be managing the Red Sox is across the country. In Arizona? Yeah. Torrey Lovello? Yeah, yeah, they already had him there, so they uh, they're not going to let this one get away this time. Yep. Uh, who you got in the series? I'm, I'm actually rooting for the Astros. I figure I'll stick Mer- American League, plus I think they're a very likable team. Although... My heart will always belong a little bit to Dave Roberts, the Dodgers manager. I can't not root for Dave Roberts. It's yeah. just it's impossible to. Yeah. I, I I think the Dodgers are fascinating because they still they still give you everything that you want in great National League baseball, but they've got a little drama now. They've got some power. Uh, it's hard not to root for Justin Turner. He escapes from the wall in Westeros and now makes his way out to now makes his way (laughs) out to the. You know what I'm saying? Like, does he not look like a wildling? It's 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 hard to pull off the red beard. I think a red beard is a really difficult thing, and he does it somehow. I'm a sucker for playoff beards at this point. I guess I fell into it being a Sox fan, but it was great to see Kershaw fulfill his potential and finally have a great start in the postseason and on the biggest stage, no less. I kind of always loved the Dodgers. You know, the same way that sometimes. You grow up an AFC guy. There's kind of an NFC team you yep. secretly root for a lot. For a lot of people, it's like the Saints or the Packers, maybe the Cowboys. Mm. But the Dodgers have kind of always been a team I've had a fondness for. Well, see, I grew up 
uh, earlier on, I was a Red Cincinnati Reds fan. The Dodgers were their nemesis, so I was not a Dodgers fan. I was never a Tommy Lasorda fan. I find this Dodger team fairly likable. First of all, they got rid of – they basically told Adrian Gonzalez, uh, or he told them, but I like to think since he's the cooler and we know it, they told him, here's a uh, five grand. Go take your family on, on vacation. We don't even want you in the country, let alone in the dugout. With his $21 million a year yeah. salary, and they still are going to tell him, like, here, tell you what – We'll pick up the the twenty five dollars per bag for the family. We'll pick it up. Use yeah. the company card. You know when they lost seventeen out of eighteen in uh, September and everybody was freaking out late August. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Adrian Gonzalez was Get all Gonzalez over that. Gonzalez out of there. Yeah, yeah, he is the cooler. Um, anyway, back to football talk. Baseball is 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 got a glamour World Series and, and good for it. Two hundred team, hundred win teams head to head. But we've had some pretty glamour matchups. In the NFL uh, of late Sunday night, obviously the Super Bowl rematch did not live up to the billing in terms of drama. Now we did have a little unexpected fog that kind of added added to the fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really thought Atlanta. Somebody asked me, was it was it? <laughs> there it is. I see it. I see it in the distance. Um, Who would have ever thought that the lighthouse would have actually come I, in handy? It was functional for once. I thought that was great because that was. Clearly decorative. And does the, do the 300 seats, do they get a refund? I don't know. They I, didn't see the second half, right? I, I mean, I, they were just, tail was told that there was a game happening below them. It was very funny because as it came in, you first I thought it was just you know some sort of fireworks effect, and then it just got thicker and thicker. And right. I'm old enough to remember the Fog Bowl, Eagles, uh, Bears, Thanksgiving, or I'm um, Thanksgiving, uh, New Year's Eve. 1988. Um, that was a fun game to watch. This was not quite to that level, but pea soup still came to mind. Well, Don, come on. Let's let's quit beating around the bush and ignoring the 800-pound elephant in the room here, uh, or gorilla, whatever the metaphor is. Um, this obviously was something that was engineered by the Patriots. Oh, clearly. Yes, uh, then clearly. that's when they smoke it. <laughs> yeah. Ernie Adams, uh, having just finished up with the Pink Stripes, uh, uh, a sub-project, yeah. Project Fogsboro, was engineered on Sunday night, and I think it worked perfectly. Uh, I think ev- everything was a smashing success as well, far as the Well, I think it's Patriots leftover science from uh, Bill's science lessons, that or that early Saturday press conference uh, oh. in Deflategate. Uh, if I had to rank top five Belichick press conferences, I think by far—I mean, number one will always still be— on to Cincinnati. But I think a close two is the Saturday the science, mo- guy. The science guy Mona Lisa Vito. Yeah. That's just to me that's number one just because on to Cincinnati was 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 totally in character. The science guy was not. So I'll take the science guy for twenty. Um, I, I celebrate the vintage Belichick myself. We are going to have a good podcast for you today. We're going to have Mark Dominic as a guest. Now, you remember Mark was a, first of all, a longtime front office member for the Tampa Bay Bucks who served as their general manager from 09 to 2013, uh, but was actually with the Bucks from 94 all the way to 13. I covered the Bucks teams of the early 90s, mid-90s. Got to know Mark a little bit. He's on Sirius XM NFL Radio, former ESPN uh, insider, a- NFL analyst as well. Mark's going to join us just a little bit, and we're going to take a lap around the league. Uh, follow-up question on Patriots-Falcons Sunday night. Do you think Sunday night was more about the Patriots? That's where I was getting when I got off track, yes. Yes. Uh, sometimes every now and again, even uh, Dr. Digression over here will steer us back on course. Thank you. Uh, do you think that was more about the Patriots riding their ship in the fog, if you will, or the Falcons being busted up, or a combination of the two? Well, a combination is my first answer, but I actually think it was more about the Falcons and their disarray. 
not that there weren't good signs uh, for the New England fan out there watching that game because night and day comes to mind in terms of the defensive execution, no blown assignments, being where you're supposed to be, knowing where you're going, doing what you're supposed to be doing. Compared to that early season stretch, unbelievably um, uh, different upgrade improvement level. However, I think this had to do with Steve Sarkeesian clearly kind of hitting rock bottom as the play caller in Atlanta. There were already fire Sark uh, hashtags trending in Atlanta Monday morning. It's clearly not the same offense with Kyle Shanahan as the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, and they got to figure that out and figure it out quick. Yeah, but he didn't make Matt Ryan overthrow some of those passes. He didn't. You know, he didn't tell people which holes to hit or not to hit. Uh, while he may not be the clever playsmith that Shanahan was, at the same time, people are just uh, underperforming all across the board there. And, you know, he also didn't tell Adrian Claiborne to make that boneheaded roughing the passer penalty on Brady when they could have picked him off in the end zone and change course. He didn't get the field goal blocked. He didn't make Matt Bryant miss a 32-yarder. He did not, and all those points are all true. But as we know, when a team starts to lose some sort of identity offensively, it's going to go to the play caller, and it's going to go to a guy who just walked in the door, obviously six games ago. He looks as if he doesn't now know what this team does best, and he doesn't have a bread and butter. And I I think the pressure's building – and they have, what, two road games coming up? So they're not going to – they're kind of in their crisis mode right now in Atlanta. 3-0 start, now 0-3 around the bye. Um, and that loss, to me, you know, it just underlined everyone's going to give Atlanta their best shot, and they have not dealt with that phenomena mm-hmm. at all. Mm-mm. So I, I thought we all had them clearly ticketed as the easy NFC South favorite. Right now, to me, they look to be, and this could be a little early, but could be struggling for the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. And the other glamour game I thought was Monday night because, first of all, Washington and Philly are a good divisional matchup, but then you had Carson Wentz's coming out party. Um, You know, I'm one that usually tries to stick with the voice of reason and not buy into too much of the hype, but you have to say it wasn't just that they won. It wasn't they put 34 on the board. That kid and his playmaking ability, his ability to, when the play starts to break down, to make something out of nothing with his arm and his legs, I thought it was all on display uh, why the Eagles went up to number two to get him Monday night. And he is a legit MVP candidate through seven weeks. I'll tell you what, the Cleveland Browns made two of the best decisions that franchise has ever made, passing on Wentz and passing on Watson. What would those guys do there? I wonder if they would just fall into the black hole of talent that is bringing your promise and ability into Cleveland. Wentz is special. I know it's annoyingly contemporary uh, to want to anoint somebody the next blank. Who's the next Kobe, the next Brady? Closest thing I think I've seen to the next Favre Wentz. Yeah. When but, would... like, but stays within his discipline, though. He's got a better throwing motion, moves a little more fluidly, and a little bit less erratic. Granted, we only have a season and a half on him so far in the pros. But what he did Monday night, when he escaped the pocket and ran 17 yards, his long ball looks great. The out passes look great. He makes the right read. Uh, think of how that team fun. Think of how that team started. They had four penalties on their first three plays. That's not easy. 
kids, don't try that at home. They were going backwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, they were at the two-yard line. I think it was second and 31. I think it was first and 31 or 33 yeah. at one point. But, yeah, it was absolutely crazy. Four touchdowns that night to four different Eagles pass catchers. He's got 17, which leads the league, and he's got 11 in the last three weeks. So week by week, we're seeing him, I think, you know, put his name right there, um, not only as the best young quarterback in the league, um, and there's there's Jared Goff, his draft classmate, who's playing really good ball. Um, but, you know, we're now seeing Wentz. Gonna, he, we're going to start stacking him up with the elites in this league, the 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 Brady's, the Rogers, and the Breeze, at least on a um, you know a, a small sample basis. A lot of great young quarterbacks to root for and hitch your wagon to over the next couple of years. Would you believe Wentz is the Vegas favorite right now for MVP of the league? Is that right? How the, about that? The Vegas favorite? That's right. Well, I guess that makes some sense because it generally goes to the quarterback for the best team, and right now the Eagles are a NFL best 6-1. and one. I'd also like to point out, again – there's there has been league wide grousing or at least fan wide grousing for years about uh, Thursday night football inferior product yeah. not fun to watch why do we have to do this it's bad for the players bad for the league we had another great Thursday night game this week this tw- 2017 an inconsistent year with ratings falling but Thursday night football has been that was yeah largely entertaining that was a great game five plays it took the Raiders to finish it off and they got it done I mean if you if you did not stay up. The first two plays, there were penalties. Um, let me see if I get this right. A wiping out Raiders or reviews that took touchdowns off the board. Cook's review. Right. And then there were two penalties against Kansas City that kept the Raiders from ending the game. Well, Crabtree got called for pushing off. Then the two Kansas City right. plays. So, And then on the fifth play, uh, the Crabtree touchdown in the front left corner of the end zone, barely. But what a classic finish. And I'm sorry, those silver numbers on the white Raiders jerseys, they should be mandatory for all road games. Those are the sweetest jerseys going in the NFL. Love because it. that is the Daryl LaMonica, George Blanda, and for reasons I don't understand, the Raymond Chester look sticks in my head as well. But the late 60s, early 70s Raiders wore those things with the silver pants, of course, not the white pants. And they were the absolute bomb in terms of jerseys. But you're right. Thursday Night Football used to be this you know, a weekly harangue, and now not so much anymore. It's been it's been pretty solid. Yeah, well, this, this week though, when we when we get Matt Moore leading the Dolphins into Flacco's busted Ravens, we may get a little bit more of what what we used to get, as opposed to some of the excellent product of this year. What do you think also about the Lynch? I it, to me, I look to me, it's hilarious. I know it's not which right. part him him <sighs> sitting in the stands. Oh, when Larshawn Minch went up into the stands yeah. and watched the game with a hoodie? Or how about him riding the BART home that night yeah. and leading an expletive-laden chant with people on mass transit towards Marcus Peters and the Chiefs? A guy he went into the game and got thrown out for trying to protect in the first place. His homie yeah. uh, in Oakland. Here's what I don't understand. Visiting teams take off right after the game. How does Marcus Peters get to be just in Oakland did he did he get to stay home because he's from there and they played a Thursday night and basically Andy Reid said fine you're already here stay because usually you know the whole, with the charter the yeah. visitor team gets on the charter and goes home and so Marcus Peters is going where on the Bart in Oakland late on a uh, a Thursday night I didn't quite get that I think he asked for a little shore leave I guess I you know I didn't you know going out on the field is completely 
uh, for a veteran, that is just completely a brain cramp move. And then putting your hand on an official. Uh, I did think it was a nice recovery to sit in the stands. <laughs> that uh, I love it when they come up with a, a situation the league has no rule on the books. Like, well, there's no rule against the player getting ejected and then going sitting in the stands. And, and that's when you know uh, that something truly unique has happened, when the league has no rule to throw at you. <laughs> they just, I'm sure that the Troy Vincent and all of them saw that and just thought, like, I have no idea what the hell to do with this. I mean, I guess it's not right, but at the same time, we're entertained. I'm thinking players thought, why didn't I think of that when right. I was chucked out? You know, why didn't I go leave it to Lynch to be the first one to go? I'm not staying in the you know locker room. I'm I'm getting out there among the people. My my radio partner uh, likes to say that Marshawn Lynch to him is the human embodiment of zero blanks given. He just when like a lot of people can try to be that way, right. but I think he is just biologically programmed to not care what anyone else says, thinks, or does. It's, it's really, it's, it's, something, it's marvelous in the, in the truest term of the, uh, the word. Like, you just marvel at it. Yeah, and that brings up uh, another quick topic we're going to hit. But all these players taking to social media, you were going to ask the question, is it bad for the NFL? Isn't it bad for society in general? I mean, basically, we've all made mistakes already on social media. But the NFL, if I'm allow- awake, I made a mistake on social media. Allowing players to jump on social media after the game, obviously the two Tampa Bay players who complained. Um, uh, I'm losing. Uh, is it was it T.J. Ward? T.J. Ward, um, and then there was a defensive lineman as well. Um, we'll ask Mark Dominic about that in just a moment. But yeah, absolutely, that is a cringe moment every time. I think the NFL now has to deal with a player unfiltered. Martavis Bryant, Martavis mm-hmm. Bryant's girlfriend, whomever, uh, who, who takes the social media. Uh, maybe uh, Brent Grimes' wife, anyone? Right, Miko. Miko. Uh, Facebook Live, Antonio Brown, locker room after the Chiefs game. Just I can name a thousand different things. It helps. It Look, it, it stirs the pot. It, it brings eyeballs back. So you're getting your clicks, your follows, or your favorites, etc. But in terms of the precedent being set and the idea, you know, Younger kids are going to see, like, oh, this is so awesome. This guy blew this other guy up on IG. Or can you believe the Twitter feud that these people are in? Okay, that's, that's fine and dandy in terms of overall numbers. But for the, the perception it sets league-wide is that the inmates are running the asylum. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, let's be honest. You don't see much of that up here in New England. So it's really <laughs> a from the top down whether you can control it. It's bedeviled Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh. At times, you just referenced Antonio Brown, um, Facebook Live. Uh, but it's, you know, that that's type of stuff uh, is part of what a modern-day NFL coach has to deal with that Bill Parcells and Joe Gibbs and Tom Landry uh, didn't have to uh, even think about. It was popping off in the papers was the only problem you had with them. I always love to think what it would be like if history had Twitter. Right. You know, in the 1700s, 1800s, like in different wars, et cetera. It's a great gig. Can you imagine like a Vince Lombardi just right. like, what? Who the hell's retweeting who over what? here? What's going on out there in Twitter world? You know, that give it that routine. I agree. I think, you know, it would be great fun if you could go back and like Don Shula had tough time staying current anyway. You know, the the infamous story of him greeting Don Johnson and, and the guy that played Crockett mm-hmm. uh, at, a, at a practice. Philip and, Michael Thomas. And thought that they were actual Miami Vice uh, agents and said, <laughs> you guys do a hell of a job every day. <laughs> and then they finally had to pull him aside and say, coach, these are actors who play 
police detectives on the TV show. They're not actually out there, um, you know, fighting crime and and doing drug busts. That so. explains a lot about the dog. It really does. It really does. But that was that was uh, how how much uh, tunnel vision or blinders uh, the man they called Shoes kept during wow. the season. That he did not know that Miami Vice uh, was an actual TV show. At this point. I don't know exactly what the front office structure is like, and maybe Mark Dominic can, like you said, can speak to this a little bit for us. But I don't, I don't know. Do teams employ? I know they have social media departments. Obviously, the New England Patriots. We sit here in their uh, in their audio production facilities in the bunker of Gillette Stadium, and we know they have one of the top tier video production and social media teams in all of professional sports. But do you employ a, a social media watchdog or ombudsman now? Is that is that an actual concern you need to have as an NFL coach and a GM? Somebody who is basically feed hawking for all of these guys and making sure nobody's IG or Twitter or Facebook is saying or doing anything inappropriate? That is a great question for Mark Dominic. I think you should ask him that. Uh, he's obviously run a club and will have experience doing exactly that. Okay, we are joined now on the Cover 2 podcast with Banks and Stevens by Mark Dominic, the former Tampa Bay general manager and a current Sirius XM NFL radio NFL analyst. Mark, good morning. Good to talk to you again. Hey, good to talk to you too, Don. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. Mark and I go way back. I uh, covered the Buccaneers uh, in the early 90s. Mark got there, I believe, in 94 and worked his way up the food chain to uh, and served from 09 to 13 as the team's general manager. Uh, still lives in Tampa, correct, Mark? Yeah, you're right, Don. I've, I've stayed here. I didn't think so, but stayed here <laughs> to uh, work with ESPN and now doing the radio. Just can't seem to find a way to leave Tampa this weather. It's not a place you really leave easily. I know I left St. Pete for <laughs> Minneapolis, and Tony Dungy told me at the time I was a raving idiot. But uh, let's, let's stick with Tampa Bay right now uh, around the league a little, Mark, because – I wrote on Sunday in my Snap Judgments column, and I, I believe this, that at this point, through seven weeks, I would have to give them the title of the most disappointing team in the NFL this season. With the Raiders winning to get the 3-4, and four, Tampa Bay struggles, I really expected them to build on last year's 9-7, and seven, take that next step, at least earn a wild-card berth. A lot of people did. From your vantage point... What hasn't happened for this Bucks team that clearly hasn't been able to finish games? Yeah, I think um, when I look at the team and watch them play, you know, I think we all sat there and expected a little bit more offensive outburst uh, from Deshaun Jackson. Some of the, you know, the free agent with O.J. Howard now finally having kind of more of a breakout game. I think that's been it. But I think I always looked at the other side of the ball and thought the secondary in the, in the National Football League if you don't have one with the way the rules are now, it's so hard to play, and it's so hard to hold on to games and win games because, you know, obviously the, the opponent's trying to do everything they can through the air to come back. And I think when I looked at Tampa Bay secondary, even in the preseason, I sat there and was concerned about just their overall talent and their overall depth, and I think that's come back to haunt them uh, right now is being able to hold on to leads, and that's why I think they've struggled. And, and I hear what you're saying. I mean, Jameis, I think Winston is playing very well, but the entire supporting cast to be able to hold on and get to the quarterback and finish off drives, they haven't been able to do. They've dealt with some injuries at linebacker, whether it was Levante David or Quan Alexander, but it's certainly been a disappointing start. The only thing I could sit there and say that's positive for them is that the South has not been, the NFC South has not been as strong right now, and no one's run away with it. So they have a right. huge matchup against the Carolina Panthers this week. 
Yeah, and that's it's kind of a it's kind of a uh, I think a you know crisis moment. Either you get it done this week, or this thing could continue to kind of unravel. Certainly yeah. not a good sign for Dirk Cutter when he. He's coming out talking about you know a team kind of fracturing from within with players taking to social media to complain. Those are never signs, um, and nope. and there have been those times in Tampa Bay in the past. You and I were both there where you, you you're seeing things um, that lead nowhere good um, coming out of the locker room or from a coaching staff. I wanted to ask you if you thought that loss to the Patriots. Obviously, it was largely about their kicking problem which ironically they seem to have solved now with Murray but that loss to the Patriots when clearly they outplayed New England and they don't finish they don't put that game away um it's just to me it was a kind of loss that could have reverberations and continue to cost them and I wonder if you agree yeah I do and I think the way the game ended they were able to drive them all the way down the length of the field so they only had one play left um and then at the end there I uh, wasn't able to cap it off and finish it off. I, I felt like that game certainly was a backbreaker because everybody, you know, still wants to beat up the champion off the hill and the Patriots. And so you have a chance to put a team on the ropes. And they did. I mean, they were running. Doug Martin was running very, very well in the game. Uh, they kind of went away from that for a little bit and uh, certainly had a chance to go down there at the end and hopefully put the ball in the end zone. Uh, you know, some of the time management and things fell apart. And I think that's what you're seeing. And I agree with, you know, the fracturing of the locker room and the things that you're seeing publicly. I know Coach. Cutter has come, you know, out and said that he's handled that internally, but it's just been certainly uh, those elements that make you nervous about how big this game is this weekend. And I agree with you, Don. I think that, you know, you play the Carolina Panthers, uh, you need to win this game. I think for everything, for the locker room, for you know, continuing to open the season and, and understanding that really it looks like right now, although we're only just about halfway through, it feels like the NFC South is only going to put one team in, and that means you got to win that division. Hey, Mark, this is Don's co-host, Nick Stevens. Nice talking with you. Um, I wanted to ask you, from your expertise, could you could you let us uh, sort of take a peek behind the curtain? You know, there have been some uh, social media revolts. There's been a lot of social media action from the players, and it just continues to grow. And obviously it's been a problem with teams. Tampa recently this week, the Steelers this season, and last January with uh, Antonio Brown's Facebook Live. Do teams actually employ... Uh, call them social media watchdogs or social media ombudsmen to keep an eye on what the players are posting to their Instagrams and Twitter to make sure they don't fly too far off the leash because it seems like it's becoming a bigger problem with every season around the league. Well, you know, what we see at the end of football in the NFL to me is a microcosm of what we see in life. Uh, and we see the social media is kind of, you know, taking over everywhere at every age in terms of these kind of things. Now, to answer your question, yeah, you know, we did actually when I was in Tampa Bay in 13 or 12 and 13, uh, every morning uh, I would get a packet uh, created of every tweet from every player over the last 24 hours just so I could see what's going out there, what's being said. Uh, but there's so many other areas, the Instagram, like you talked about, the Snapchat world, which is tricky. Uh, but, you know, I think that what our goal was was two things. One, uh, to educate them and talk to them about just, like, be careful of the moment, pause, you know, the old pause before you send. And number two is that it matters to us. Because to us, you know, you're part of our brand, and our brand is the football team. And so what you do is reflection not just on you, but everybody. And so we try to impart a lot of wisdom, or at least try to give them at least the mindset to say, if we do something here that could hurt us, you know, it's not just going to hurt you, it's going to kind of fracture everything. And that's where you see the disappointment when you see sometimes 
players feel like they've got to go there, and you know, ideally, uh, everything would be handled in house. Mark, back on the field for a, a moment. We were talking earlier that the Carson Wentz performance Monday night it it felt like that coming out moment for a, a, a young second year quarterback who's obviously been impressive since he arrived in Philadelphia, but that performance and the way he was able to overcome a slow start and make plays with his arm and with his legs in ways that were really, I you kind of, you know, took your breath away at times. I felt like as much as we guard against the hype train, it felt real. It felt legitimate to now look at Philadelphia with Wentz and say, we can talk about them in terms of a potential Super Bowl season, and it doesn't sound far-fetched. Your, your analysis of what you saw from Wentz, and if you think he's now, um, I guess, taken that step where it, it doesn't sound implausible to talk Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Carson, Carson's obviously played extremely well and very impressive overall. And I think what you saw was what I'd heard about Philadelphia and in talking to people within their organization during the offseason and certainly all the way through the preseason, that they are not surprised. I mean, if you talk to, to people again, they saw the work ethic and, the, and all the, you know, the, the ability to be in the same system with the same coaches, understanding it better. They saw it every day in those OTAs and the practices. And, and so it's finally parlayed to everybody getting to see what they've been raving about behind the scenes. And it's a big, look, this was a big move by Harry Roseman to go up there and make the trade. I mean, a lot of people didn't see it coming. He had to make the first move to get rid of Byron Maxwell to move up to eight, and he was able to get all the way up there, you know, to number two and be able to get, you know, obviously Carson Wentz, a huge move and a, and a good play because everything revolves around that position. We all know that. And now the Eagles legitimately have one of the top young quarterbacks in National Football League. And the thought of having that in, in their division is strong. And, you know, I still think the Cowboys are going to make a go of it. Certainly Kirk Cousins is playing well, but, you know, you go through the first half of the season and say, who looks like the most balanced, who's playing really well offensively and defensively? I would say that, yeah, the Eagles are for real. And the good thing for Eagles fans is they're for real for a while. And yeah. that's a great feeling. Yeah. Mark, I want to ask you one question that it, it it's somewhat unique in the NFL that – Head coaches seem to get chance after chance, and obviously this is a, a question that hits a little close to home for you, but general managers, we saw three teams replace general managers or let their general managers go late, relatively late uh, in the offseason. Kansas City, Buffalo, and Indy all made moves. Two of them are you know, sitting pretty well right now, Buffalo and Kansas City. Indy has obviously struggled without luck. I just wonder, why do you think – what are the reasons behind in the NFL when a, a general manager gets his shot and if it doesn't if he doesn't nail it, generally speaking, they don't get that second or third chance, whereas coaches do. I know there's the Bill Polian exceptions and, and a few people like that, but by and large, it is a one shot type of league for GMs. Your situation in Tampa Bay is a pretty good example. Um, how do you think it differs dramatically? Uh, to an owner as opposed to a head coach? You know, I'd, it's a question I've asked myself a lot. You know, you, you realize that when you start in the scouting ranks or however you come to the general manager position, you got there for a reason. You know, my world was through scouting and becoming the director of pro and, and doing as much as I can to add talent to the football team all day long. And then you become a general manager and you realize that you're only spending 25 to 30% of your time on the scouting part, 70% of the time on 
talking to the trainers, the coaches, you know, the ownership, the marketing, the the, the, the PR department, the media. You're really yeah, all, yeah, all that the media, and so you're so spent on everything, and, and it's all new. And so the thing I I haven't understood is, you know, I learned a lot of stuff along the way, just as much as any other general manager that's been let go that's had an opportunity. Said, look, I, I've actually learned a lot, and and you don't really get to reapply it. Where I think is a, and I think part of the reason is is uh, is draft players. Uh, I think. You know, wins and losses stick with the coach, with the coach, but it also carries with the general manager. So, whether you had an, a chance to win the game or not, that record goes with you as a GM. And then the draft generally goes with the general manager, unless it's a good or you know however it works. But you know, it, it always kind of sticks more to the general manager. Also. So the general manager gets whatever the team's record is, and then also whatever the draft history is. And I think sometimes the head coach kind of well, you know, we'll see about the draft, and yeah, the the record was that, but maybe there wasn't a lot of talent. So there's a lot of ways to talk through it. And I think another way is we see coaches able to reinvent themselves as coordinators at a really prolific level. So right. you look at them again and say, wait a second, look what they've done. You know, assistant GM, you know, guys that go back out of the league or, you know, there's a lot of guys that are right now that are like national scouts for, for certain clubs, whether it's Tim Ruskell with the Tennessee Titans, whether it's Rustin Webster with the Atlanta Falcons, Dennis Hickey with the Buffalo Bills. You know, they're all at this national level scout, but no one really wants or sees do they get credit for what they're doing. And so it becomes hard. And so I think the hope is that every owner looks at the next gym and says, this guy's going to bat 100% of the draft because he's never been wrong yet in the draft. And I think that's a hope that people have. But I think the thing is that every GM learns on the job. And it's amazing. I mean, John Dorsey, the team he built in, right. in Kansas City is really good. That's a good football team. Right. And so you sit there and you look at that and go, now, does he get another shot? I don't know. You know, and and, and uh, you know, I think John Dorsey's probably learned a lot about leadership as much as he's learned as as a scout. And I think that's one of the things where I think what the really next step should be. And it's not because of where I sit, guys. It's just what whoever you want. I think these young general managers are getting jobs, which is great. The Brett Beaches of the world, or whoever. Uh, you know, that I think one of the things that they should start to think about surrounding themselves are with with assistants that have had the position before just to kind of walk through it with them because it is a very hard learning curve. And, you know, uh, I think there's some, uh, there's some good value that you could bring to organizations to hire Rustin Webster and be your assistant GM. And he's not looking to be a GM again, probably. He's just willing to be a good sounding board and to help take things off the plate of a general manager. But on that very same subject, uh, Mark, uh, from the department of we all can't not rubberneck at the car on fire on the side of the road, the Cleveland Browns, how does – I, I'd, I'd just love to hear even maybe what you would think you would do to it because how does a team seem to always have a top, if not several top picks every year, and they can't find their way out of the basement or the tailspin that they're perpetually in? I mean, there just should be an accumulation of talent right now that should play them into some sort of relevance, yet still they pass on the Watsons, they pass on the Wences and the Goffs, and they're no better off now than they were five years ago, and five years ago, things were a mess. Mark, I know that's about a 20-minute answer, so uh, <laughs> you can I'll, sum it yeah. up quickly. I'll sum it up quickly with the simple fact is when you have opportunity to take quarterbacks, you have to do it. You have to jump. I took a chance on Josh Freeman back in 2009 because the reality is there was three quarterbacks in that class. It was Stafford, it was Sanchez, Freeman, the next one was Pat White, no one else ever played out. But I'm a firm believer that you go draft a young quarterback as fast as you can, if they can't get it done, go back in. So in 13, I drafted Mike Glennon. I still think he's the best quarterback of the 13 class. Which is Maybe a bad class. Enough to be, yeah, it was, which was not a really good class. 
But, you know, I think he was the best because you have to go back. And once you realize you don't think you've got the guy, you've got to go back there. I think what's wrong with Cleveland, and I've said this time and time again, is you can have as many picks as you want. You've got to keep swinging at the quarterback position. The Bengals did it, and they got it right finally with Carson Palmer. Then they did it again with Andy Dalton and got a guy they believed in. If you think about John Schneider, you know, he went out and, you know, he signed, you know, Flynn for a big contract, traded for Charlie Weister, gave up two threes, and still drafted Russell Wilson because he realized I got to keep finding any way I can to go get that quarterback. And Cleveland's been the exact opposite. They've always let the player come to them, or maybe they trade back up and go get a quarterback that's fallen. When you're there, Go get that guy. You've got to go take him. You've got to find a way to get that player. They haven't, and that's why it's the same predicament every year. So in real estate, it's location, location, location. If it's an NFL GM, it's quarterback, quarterback, quarterback. 100%. And <laughs> I think you've got to have the mindset. You know, I think the, the most interesting team to me in the National Football League this year will be the Minnesota Vikings. Think of this, and I'll leave you guys with this thought. Over the last six drafts, Minnesota's used three first-round picks on quarterbacks, right. whether that was Christian Ponder, Obviously, Teddy Bridgewater and, and to get Sam Bradford. They don't know who their quarterback is the next year, and they could be doing another one. So that means the Minnesota Vikings could, over the last seven years, possibly use four first round picks on quarterbacks because they realize you got to keep doing that. They have no quarterbacks under contract next year going Correct. into a scary situation. Mark Dominic, former Tampa Bay Bucks general manager, current Sirius XM NFL radio analyst. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Always insightful. Uh, always uh, great information. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be on. Thanks for having me on. All the best. Thanks, Mark. Okay, we thank Mark Dominic for his time and um, good conversation. I, I I think he's one of the sharper minds, not only in personnel, but um, having had the experience at a pretty young age in his career to run an entire NFL front office. That was a gr- great interview, and uh, just I, I, le- I learned a lot over those 15 minutes. And on that social media front, he talked about the fact, I thought it was fascinating, that he got a packet prepared yeah, for him, I even five years ago, every day, with what everyone had posted and tweeted. To me, and he said, you know, it, it pervades more than just sports. It's all over society, obviously. But to me, it goes back to, you know, the comedian Craig Ferguson used to do the yeah. Late Late Show on CBS. Sure. He's got what he, the, I call it the Ferguson principle. His rule of social media, it's a three-pronged question. Does this need to be said? Does this need to be said right now, and does this need to be said by me? Stick to those three rules, and everything's cream cheese. I actually think social media goes away under those three rules. It doesn't exist. By and large. By and large. All right. Um, you had a little idea that we're going to yeah. play a quick little game. Got a fun little game to sort of catch up on where we are now and segue into week eight. This any is, any uh, cash involved? Uh, just straight cash, homie. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> I'm never going to pass up on a chance to say that. Great cash, homie. Yeah. Uh, we call this Is It Too Early? So, Don, you tell me, having come off of that interview with Mark Dominic, is it too early to say that the Bucks at 2-4, two 2-1 and four, two and one at home, 0-3 oh in the road, are done as a playoff qualifier? No. I, I think um, even though, as he pointed out, no one has run away with that division, what I see of the Saints – I still believe Carolina are a potential Carolina's potential playoff team, and I still think Atlanta's going to get together. I think the Bucks are already done. I think they needed a fast start. Is it too early to bail on the Broncos and say the Raiders will be the second playoff team coming out of the AFC West? Yeah, I think it's too early. Um, what are the Broncos now? Three and three. Correct. Yeah, they were three and one. Then they they took their bye, and then the, the bad losses uh, to the Giants and Chargers. Yeah, it's too early. Uh, I want to see Paxton Lynch in there and see if, if he can give him a spark, and I think one more loss will do that. Okay. Is it too early 
to say the Eagles have locked up the NFC East? Boy, a week ago I would have said yes, but the Cowboys are the only team now, having beaten Washington twice head-to-head with Washington 3-3 three and three and the Eagles 6-1, and one, I mean, do that math. That's almost like a four-game lead, really, with the tiebreaker. Three and a half games, I think. So I think only Dallas can catch them. The Eagles right now would have to give it away, so I think it's not too early to say that they've got the NFC East. And is it too early to say the Steelers are the kings of the North and they've got the AFC North locked up? No, it's not. Um, I really expected more out of the Ravens, but it's that offense just has no rhythm, no consistency, and you cannot count on any part of it right now. So I think the Steelers are going to be the AFC North champ, so I'm saying it's not too early. All right. All right. How about week eight? We've got um, – I think we've got some awfully bad games uh-huh. this week. I'm just going to rip through Miami at Baltimore for all the reasons offensively those those two teams have been tough to watch. I know the Dolphins find a way somehow to get to 4-2, and two, but it's not been pretty. San Francisco at Philly, that could be complete roadkill uh-huh. uh, coming off that 40-10 to 10 debacle against Dallas at home for the 49ers, and then Philly plays so well. I guess short week is your only hope there. Indy at Cincinnati, blah. Minnesota at Cleveland in London, I'm sorry, the Browns are not watchable again. Even Denver at Kansas City, the Broncos that we have seen lose to the Giants and the Chargers against NKC uh, on Monday night, that could be a blowout. Would you believe that the better half of the slate this week would... Well, I would say the majority of the watchable part of the slate is the 1 o'clock games. Chargers at Patriots is now suddenly right watchable, interesting. Chargers, 3-4, and four, winners of three in a row, but of course they chargered their way, if, if you will. They bolted their way to three losses early in the season that swung, hinged, or were decided by a field, field goal. goal yeah. So 3-4 and four is actually deceptive. This, they, they're a better team than their record indicates. They are. Them. You and, are what you are. You know, I remember them coming into Gillette in 05 when the Patriots had that ridiculous long win streak at home and the Chargers came in here with Phillip Rivers and 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 got it done. And then played Bre- That was Breeze. Last what? year of Breeze. In 05. Yep. Yes, you're right. You're right. It was a Breeze coach because Rivers Steamrolled them. Marty Ball and Breeze steamrolled the Patriots yeah, that Sunday. I remember covering that game. And then I remember, obviously, in the 07 season, they came in and played pretty well in the AFC title game. They at least made the Patriots work for it. So they're not intimidated uh, historically from coming into Gillette. So it could be, you're right, it could be a better game than I'm expecting. I'll tell you a game that I'm actually looking forward to that's a little bit weird. Chicago at New Orleans. I, I like to call it the Mike Ditka Bowl. He coached them both once upon a time. People forget he was he had a drive-by through New Orleans. Thanks for stopping by, the, Mike. The, the Ditka Bowl. Remember coming out with, like, uh, Ricky Williams in right, the wedding the, dress? Yeah, that was Top a, 10 most surreal press conference. He had already gone around, the, gone around the corner, and we didn't even know it. Uh, we were still giving him credit for his Chicago era. But you've got Trubis, Trubisky versus Breeze. One guy could throw it seven times. The other guy could throw it 70 times. And that could be an absolutely fascinating matchup. The the offensive uh, trickerations that are being employed right now by the Bears are kind of fun. I mean, they're, they're, they've they're officially said we're going to let Trubisky get his first team reps. We know the Dungies of the world like that. But they're not going to let him lose the game. So they've got Tariq Cohen throwing passes. They're running end arounds. It's John Fox. It's always John Fox. He did this with Tebow. He somehow figured out a game plan to win with a guy who couldn't complete, you know, seven passes in right. a game. He's done it in Carolina. Right. Uh, when when um, 
uh, Jake Delhomme was hurt one time. I think you know he 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 ran Chris Wenke out there and won with about six completions. Old man Wenke, and he's doing it again with Trubisky. So, and here's the other thing: two very improved defenses. The Bears and Saints are both playing ball on that side of the football, and I think that could be a a, a weirdly interesting game. Um, what else you got that interests you this weekend? Cowboys Redskins in the four o'clock slate has a lot more juice on it because than you would have expected because loser may kind of have to start packing their bags and kind be, of being prepared to leave bowl. town because of the six and one Eagles. Right, and then on the other side, Texans Seahawks, two teams with battered defensive lines that have had to sign some out of the league, you know, veterans. You bring in Lamar Houston in Houston. And then you bring in, I think, uh, did Freeney just sign? Yeah, Dwight Freeney is now a Seahawk pass rusher. Wow. 37-year-old. I, lo- I love that move. I mean, he brought it last year in Atlanta, and I think he's going to help. Obviously, sure with Cliff Averill out, I mm-hmm. think he's going to help. You know, what I like is the quarterback matchup in that game. Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson, no, they're not, they don't play exactly the same game, but they play a little bit of the same game. Yep. And it's like he's the younger, uh, sexier uh, shinier version of what Russell Wilson was back in 2012, his rookie year. We have five years later, kind of the new Russell Wilson. Those would both be highly watchable. And if I had told you this before the season started, if I'd have said, Don, in my best 30 for 30 voice, what if I told you that in week eight, the Atlanta Falcons season hinged on a trip to the Meadowlands? Wow. How crazy would you have called me? That's Yeah, that's true. Against the mighty Jets. Now, the Jets aren't aren't the world beaters that we presumed. They're uh, not as bad as we thought they were no. either. Did you ever think the Jets would be so good to be in position to blow a 14-point fourth quarter lead? I didn't foresee that coming. They blew two 14-point leads two weeks in a row. Right, right. So the, they're just good enough now. Break up fig- the Jets. To figure out how to how to uh, lose and, and blow uh, double-digit leads. But you're right. The Falcons need to... They need to put something together. If they lose on the road to a Jets team that was supposedly tanking the season away, uh, Sarkeesian could be out of there you know, before the, the charter home. Yeah. So, week 8 podcast in the books. Uh, Mark Dominic was our guest, but there was a lot to talk about, including uh, obviously we had to start with the Red Sox manager. But Nick, another week in the NFL is on the way. And let's, uh, let's remember Thursday Night Football is our friend now. It right. is not our enemy. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Kevin Collins, to our producer, who's man behind the glass. We will talk to you next week. Thank you for downloading the Cover 2 podcast from Patriots.com. Second and goal to go from the two. Toss sweep right for James White. Cuts it under the right arm. Cuts it upfield. Driving forward. Diving to the goal line. A touchdown and a title for the Patriots. I can't believe it. They have completed the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Log on to Patriots.com anytime for more news and more podcasts covering your favorite team and all things NFL.